0: this computer. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Cloud Wars Live. We are digging deep into the digital revolution that is sort of disrupting, enhancing, and certainly changing every aspect of our lives. Uh, One of our favorite, and I believe our longest running guest here on Cloud Wars Live is Wayne Saden. Uh, Wayne is with us every month. Wayne, who has been a CIO, a CDO, and a CTO, has been now advising boards of directors and CEOs on how to weave digital fully into their business strategy and how to succeed in this uh, wildly changing world. Wayne, welcome back, it's always a pleasure to have you. And it's
1: a pleasure to have to be here and see you, but it's weird seeing you on the end of a video link after we spent a week together.
0: <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Cloud Wars Expo is very special, Wayne. You were, uh, I, I know I heard this great things about some of the discussions you led and the things that you were involved in there. And Wayne, I have to ask now, I'm often accustomed to seeing you in a pretty jazzy t-shirt of different sorts. What's the occasion here? You're looking even sharper than usual.
1: Well, every now and then you got to put a tie on when you're a consultant. So I figured I would give the the viewers a chance to see what I look like when I'm wearing one of my many weird ties. I've got (laughs) ties that are better than my t-shirts and people may see them over time.
0: All right. Hey, who knows? We might have to have an interactive uh, uh, event about that. Wait rate Wayne's ties. All right.
1: Wait wait till I get into my suspender phase again. If when I'm
0: wearing suits, I've got suspenders and you'll see that. Okay. Okay. Well, sure. Um, So Wayne, you know, you mentioned Cloud Wars Expo and I know, uh, you know, sometimes these things, they can be choreographed very carefully. At other times, you just like what goes on in the world today, the business world today, you got to wing things a little bit, but you had an experience there at the show where you had to wing it a little bit.
1: Well, I, I, my, one of my favorite stories in 40 years as a presenter was doing a panel with Bob. And when you do a panel with Bob, you know Bob has got everything in good hands. Bob is going to lead you with questions. Bob is going to maintain the, the cadence of the event. He's going to involve the audience. So actually, as a speaker, I can relax because I got Bob with me. And we're doing a supply chain uh, discussion about why the supply chain is broken and how to fix it. We got a full, full room. And Bob is up there talking and turns the mic over to me. And I start talking at the front of the room. And uh, John Seifert, the CEO of our company, walks to the back of the room and waves at Bob. And Bob kind of quietly walks off to the side. And he and John are in the back having a conversation. I'm waiting for Bob to come back to the front to ask me the next question. And the next thing I see is John looks at me and waves at me like this (laughs) from the back of the room. And Bob hands his microphone to one of the crew and walks out of the room. And here I am all alone. Now, I've had audience members walk out on me before when I, spoke, but I never had a co-panelist walk out before. Um, so I'm interested to see the video because I want to see what the rest of the presentation looked like myself. But you know, Bob, that brings up a good point. We're going to be having these videos. So I get to see myself and I get to see you and I get to see everybody on video next week, don't I?
0: Yep, starting July 20th, Wayne, the Cloud Wars Expo on-demand pass will become active, and all of the content from all of the sessions there—40 uh, hours of programming, 100 speakers—it um, it will be it will be something that I think there's there's tons of value there, Wayne. So we had a great time at the event, but I'm so delighted that we're also going to be able to share that fantastic content with everybody. Wayne, you just talked a little bit about the co-creation of, uh, you know, a whole new type of panel discussion where the moderator leaves. And um, so I know we're going to get to that. But Wayne, you know, uh, I think one of the other things really interesting, we heard hybrid cloud at various points throughout the Cloud Wars Expo, but it was really so one of the main things that the uh, a senior VP and head of the Cloud platform at IBM, Howard Bovill talked about. So you said that had inspired you to share a few thoughts. So why don't we kick it off with that around hybrid cloud, Wayne?
1: Sure. First off, let me comment on Howard Bovill's conversations with us. Um, I think it's a terrific thing that IBM did, bringing an actual CIO into their business. You know, too often vendors live in their own world, their own ecosystem. Come, people move from one vendor to another, to another, to another and they never sit on my side of the desk. They're never a consumer of this stuff. And so the fact that IBM brought in a top CIO, somebody that spent billions of dollars on this technology in in, in a company that's been an IBM customer probably since IBM first made mainframes, um, is a wonderful thing. And so listening to Howard speak to the crowd um, on the big stage, and we saw him on a little stage, um, in another event uh, was just terrific to see that IBM really gets it. But you know, when you you were doing something yesterday about that on uh, your Cloud Wars Minute, and I thought if you're a CEO and you hear the word hybrid cloud, what does it mean to you? Uh, how do we talk about it so that the business folks get an understanding of what's hybrid cloud and, and the different kinds of things that are under this umbrella term? So let me kind of take it from the simplest one. We have the old architecture, maybe it's mainframes, maybe it's on-prem servers, it's Unix boxes, it's whatever you're running today. And somebody signs a license for Salesforce or for some other product with a credit card. Now you're hybrid cloud. I've got my old architecture and I've got stuff on the cloud. And that goes up to and including, I've got complete ecosystems in the cloud. I'm paying hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, but my old architecture is over here run by IT. And then I've got this new architecture that the business units are out buying. And, you know, Bob, we've talked about why business units go off and buy software. We won't dwell on that here. But I will say that that starts companies a lot of times on their journey to the cloud was we have our way of doing things. And then a business unit says, let me embrace a new world called cloud. And then people start saying, hey, that's pretty good. So so that's kind of level one. It's very simple. Get a credit card get a purchase order and now you're in the hybrid cloud business. The message to the CEO is that gives you a lot of uh, speed benefits in the business, but no overall corporate benefit because the stuff is not working together. So the next thing that should happen is an organization in IT has your old architecture, start adopting some of the modern development principles that underlie the cloud tools. Um, I won't get into too much technical detail, but Agile is something people have heard. It's how do I develop software quicker by responding more quickly to market signals, whether from my own internal customers or external customers. It's moving from development is over here and operations is over here and security is back there somewhere to what's known as DevOps or DevSecOps, combining the functions to get higher quality and uh, lower cycle time, faster turnaround. It's containerization, it's a whole bunch of things that will make your traditional IT. And as Howard Bovel told us, even in the IBM mainframe world, these principles work and help IT groups become more nimble, more agile, more customer responsive, higher quality, better security, all sorts of things. So that starts the IT group now on the journey. So maybe the businesses bought some cloud, IT is on the the journey, you're still in a very uh, early stage of hybrid. The next thing that comes up is I take my on-prem, the stuff I'm running in-house, and I've got this cloud stuff and I start to integrate them. I start to take advantage of the best of both worlds. And again, Howard Vogel talked about that. How do I take my mainframe, which is not necessarily easy to move to a modern cloud, and it's very good at doing certain things. And how do I build a web front end on, in the front of that? How do I build a cloud architecture system from one of the major cloud companies? hook them together. There are two main ways I can connect the data. So here's my mainframe data and I put a web front end and now the web server gets through the mainframe to the big database of all my customers, all my products, all my SKUs and so on. That's integration at the data level or the other one is process or system integration. A program running on the web wakes up a program in CICS on the mainframe that then goes to db2 on the mainframe, that then sends a message to a cloud system running at Google or IBM or Oracle, triggering a transaction that then does something. So now I'm starting to get all the pieces tied together. And that's really the definition, I think, when you're talking about I'm in the hybrid cloud world, what you mean. And Bob, I want to make a little distinction. At some point right around here, your security model has to change. If you're a CEO or CFO or a a non-technical C-suite. You're moving now from, think of it as the castle model of defense. I've got a castle, I got a moat, I got the archers up on top. <laughs> if, if, you know, if you saw Game of Thrones, they protected from the White Walkers and they, they set the moat on fire and everything. That was your data center. It was this big concrete building, sometimes buried underground, and you could defend it against all incursions. And now the model is more villages. We have hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of villages. There are sites. There are people with cell phones or devices. There are cars, trucks, machinery, all the data centers I'm running. And so your security model kind of turns inside out and says the building called the data center is not the key. It's all the places where I have data processing and users. So at that point, your hybrid thinking has to start changing to a new security model, Mm -hmm. or else you're going to get an end run around your security. And then, of course, there's another option, which the vendors do mention, but I want to make a distinction. I can run all the stuff I want internally, my old way of doing it. I got my old servers, maybe I got 500 servers, I got uh, big boxes of disk space and so on. And I've got an army of people managing that they're racking and stacking servers, they're changing memory and changing configurations, tuning things. Well, you know, the cloud vendors have figured out how to put a lot of intelligence into their platform. When the cloud vendors who run millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of servers need to move load because something went bad or because they need to scale you up, they don't have human beings doing most of it, they have computers doing it. So most of them have a cloud product that allows me to run the cloud architecture from that vendor in my own shop. Maybe you got data sovereignty issues, you got security concerns, you just don't feel like it's right to put the data in someone else's building. I can get software from the major cloud companies and start running my company using the cloud principles. And that's a perfectly reasonable hybrid cloud model. It's a way of getting your dev staff and ops staff into the DevOps model, the DevSecOps model and kind of making that transition a little less painfully then I'm gonna pick up a major application and see what happens if I put it in Google or Microsoft or Oracle. Um, it's a terrific way of adopting a little bit of this and a little bit of that strategy so that your staff gets good at it. You learn all the pitfalls and you can move forward. And so those are all models that are perfectly acceptable for hybrid cloud. And these are models that your company ought to be adopting. I just want to say, if you're the CEO or the CFO, and you hear terms like, we got virtualization, I won't name any vendors, but there are a couple of virtualization vendors. We virtualize, so we're in the cloud. No, you're not. You're just taking one server and making it into 50. That's not cloud. Um, The other one you hear about is this thing called hyperconverged. We took all of the parts from the computer and stuck it in a box. So instead of having a box over here and a box over here and a box over here, it's all in one box. There are some reasons to do that in places, but it's not cloud. You can call it a lot of things, but please don't call it cloud. So I I fight a lot in my practice uh, against the fake cloud model. And Howard, of course, and the other vendors are all talking about the real hybrid cloud opportunities. And I want the CEO, the CFO, and even the CIO to be aware that there are many ways to skin this cat, many ways to solve this problem. And there's no one right way for companies. And that's the beauty of saying I'm a IBM or an Oracle or the other companies that have been around for a while and giving my customers options because you don't wanna to have to be pushed off the burning platform, right? If I've got a running environment, I get scared. Oh, I gotta go, gotta go to cloud. Gotta change everything I do all at once. If you're a little startup, that's okay. If you're an enterprise company, that's going to be a very, very risky undertaking. And so the vendors like IBM and others have given you many, many paths to get you the best mix of resources. And that's really what the CIO's job is, is allocating computing resources to give quality, security, availability, features, performance, those sort of things.
0: Yeah, Wayne, I I, I love that uh, overview you gave, especially from for from the perspective or for the uh, the education of the CEO there about you know what all these sort of zany new terms mean. But uh, what I took away from what you said was. It gives you more choices. It gives you the opportunity to say, here's what's working well and should be kept where it is. There's other things that should be modernized or moved. Let's do that. But it doesn't have to be an all or nothing about the company, right? Uh, You know, burning platforms like you talked about. So um, to me, uh, I I think when that really comes out, which is it's... uh, it's an evolution, too, of how the tech vendors, I think, talk to the world. It used to be the one of the things, you know, we have the latest and greatest, and if you don't have it, you're going to fall behind, blah, 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 so on like that. And now I think that more the notion is we know that you, as somebody running big businesses, have lots of choices to make. You need to have lots of specialized things here and there. We're going to allow you to do that in the combination and the uh, permutations that are best for you, and as you need to move forward on that will ensure that everything works together the way it needs to so Wayne a a very good description on that and I know before we talk about some of your ideas on co-creation Wayne I just wanted to share a message from our sponsor BMC and that is if you think of a world class gymnast like Simone Biles you think of someone bringing the A game to her sport the absolute highest level of performance you can think of and you can get to that level of in business as well. BMC calls this the autonomous digital enterprise. It's when automation is effortless and therefore allows people to concentrate on innovation. You can find out more at bmc.com slash game. So Wayne, the uh, the tech industry, I think for a while was uh, did it intentionally or unintentionally, I'm not sure, but lots of terms that like hybrid cloud that we thought would help inform customers about things, but actually just sort of talked about things from an inside the tech industry perspective going outward. Um, One other one that I think is a little more uh, easily understood and almost consumable on the part of of business people, but I think is just an extraordinary one right now, is this idea of co-creation. But I hear sometimes people talk about co-innovation or co-creation, co-engineer, co-develop, different things like that. I like the idea of co-creation, best of all. I know you've got some interesting thoughts on that, Wayne. So uh, what's your take on this and and why is it important to business people?
1: Well, it's important to business people for the pragmatic reason that if you're a co-creator, you get what you want out of it. Um, I've been buying software for over 30 years. I've been building software for just as long. I've gone back and forth between software companies and been a CIO for companies that buy software. And a couple of times those companies that buy software said we're gonna build software because we're so smart at this. So the beauty of co-creation is if I build my own software that's just for me, I get to maintain it forever. And Mm -hmm. I've got to fit it into the vendor ecosystems, the hardware, the software, the applications, the databases that everybody keeps innovating on around me. And in the old model, you could be a software company. I worked for a couple of software companies. We built software. I knew what my job was. I came in in the morning. We were in the software business. I built software. I sold software. I supported customers running software. I enhanced the software. I wrote documentation. That was what I did. But a couple of times, I would join a bank or another company as a CIO. And they would say, hey, why don't we write software? Because we're so good at banking. Let's go build some software. Or worse, let's go buy a software company and get in the business because we're a bank, we, or whatever company we are. And we, therefore, know how to run software business. So my first message to the CEO of a non-software company is we're going to build software for fun and profit as a hobby is not a business strategy. It's a very risky way of pouring a lot of money down a rat hole because you're not going to get a good return without some investment. And that's what people don't get. And if you're a CIO, it sounds terrific. I'm going to be, in the, I'm going to be a profit center. I'm going to build software and sell it. We're going to make money. So let me go back and talk about first principles. You know, We, we talk about Howard Boval at IBM. There's a guy named Frederick P. Brooks, Fred Brooks, who worked for IBM 60 years ago. He was the architect of the operating system for the 360 computer, OS 360 and its various flavors. And he ran the biggest software project I believe ever done, certainly at the time ever done, billions of dollars in 1950 something dollars. And when he finished the project, he wrote a book called The Mythical Man Month say that three times fast. (laughs) I got it 40 years ago, and I've read it 10 times since. I think he revised it once um, later in his career. But it has a lot of principles in it that still apply to this day. And one of the chapters in the book said, if you're going to write a program, I'm a programmer, I write a program. And that takes effort, cost, time, X. And now I want to write a system of programs that work together. How much effort is that? Well, now i got to start defining interfaces, which means i got to document stuff. I've got to make data flow from here to there. I've got to make sure this program doesn't break that program. I've got to build a scaffolding to run the two programs or three or 20 or 50 and get them to work together. So Fred Brooks said the effort of designing a system of programs is three times the work of writing the individual programs. That's one dimension. The other one is, if I write a program for me to use in my department, in my company, where I'm still there to answer questions, that takes effort X. Now I wanna sell the piece of software. I want it to be run by people I don't know personally in environments that I don't control. So he said, writing a program product is three times the work of writing a program. Now, writing a programming product system is therefore nine times as hard. Um, and I, I can tell you that I've lived this world. Um, I worked for a company once that built a very cool software hardware product that would be used by customers and tied to banking systems. And it was a very brilliant product that changed the nature of our industry. So I'll tell you a quick story. We had an IT help desk because we build this product. It, we're, we're in the uh, logistics business and now we have this cool product and so marketing, selling it, and sales is, you know, marketing is marketing, and sales is selling it. Ops is delivering the hardware. And one day I walked by my IT help desk. These are the people that answered questions for our 10,000 employees. And I hear my junior help desk person, relatively new to the company, quite young, on the phone explaining how to reconcile financial statements. It's like, why is the help desk having that conversation? So when the call ended, I said to this young man, who are you talking to? And he said, oh, the CFO of ABC Bank. You're talking to CFO of a bank? Wait, you're my IT help desk person. Well, they had a problem with this product we're selling and nobody could explain it. So I studied on it and now I explained it. And I discovered that my IT help desk was in the business of supporting customers using the product. And now we're talking to CFOs of banks. This was the person that told you how to reboot your computer. (laughs) And he was telling CFOs how to do their job better. (laughs) And so you've got to build an environment to support this world. Another time, I will tell you, too, that it gets very, um, very difficult. Um, I had a business unit once that I took a job at that sold software. We were financial services software. We were part of a bank. And so the regs changed in the banking business. All of a sudden the government promulgated new regs for this kind of loan and I had to support it. I had tens of thousands of users on my system. I didn't have the budget for it. We just didn't have it, the government changed the rules. So I flew to headquarters and said to the vice chairman, I need X number of dollars. And he looked at me and he said, son, interest margins are down. We don't have the money for that. And I said, I got customers that are gonna go to jail. I can't not do this. This is a regulatory compliance requirement. And he looked at me and said, what part of interest rates don't you understand? Um, The best thing that company ever did was sold the software business unit because the investment cycle for software, especially regulated application software in a space like banking or healthcare, you got to do what you got to do to support the customers. And so... If you're a CEO and you want to get into this business, it is a business that can make a lot of money. Um, But you have a lot of downside. Again, I worked for this bank and we sold our software. Guess what? Our competitor banks in our geography wouldn't buy from us. Well, I don't want to give money to a competitor. Mm -hmm. Bob, I got to tell you, that was a really dumb thing because we were a bank like they were, and my business unit was the beta test for me. I built software. They debugged it. And then, if you're another bank, you could have bug free software that we spent our effort debugging versus having software people that don't know your business building software and throwing it to you to fix. So, you know, I get the retailers don't want to give money to Amazon because they are such a behemoth. I was never with a behemoth in that business. We weren't going to steal the business from the national and global banks. But the idea that you don't want to do business with a competitor. It can be another thing. If you're a co-creator, you typically co-create in a business you know. Yes. How are your potential customers, who may also be competitors, going to look at you? In some industries, software, coopetition, we're going to compete with our friends and be friends with our competitors is common. In a lot of other industries, it's if you're not us, you're the enemy. (laughs) And so that's an old mindset that I hope will change but it's a very tough thing. But you know, Bob, that's the old world. So let's talk for a minute about how the cloud changes things. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you talk about co-creation, you talk about industry clouds. So now we have vendors, Oracle, Microsoft, Google, IBM, all of them talking about focusing on an industry. And now if you're in that industry, how do you help them move forward? They want you to succeed. It's not like I have to build a software company I now have to build a product and give it to my distribution channel called Microsoft, Google, IBM, Oracle, et cetera. They'll take care of distributing it for me. So a lot of the complexity goes away. I no longer have to ship things out. I no longer have to help companies install it necessarily because it's in their app store. You put in software from from Apple or from Android and you go click, 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 and it generally runs. Um, the same thing runs if you're working in the app stores for the big cloud vendors. If the software is properly built, it installs pretty seamlessly. Now, getting it to work the way you want, configuring, is not trivial. But the, a lot of the distribution workload, how do I get the software physically installed in the customer site, is now taken over by the company running the app store for you, mm-hmm. the cloud vendor. So a lot of the complexity goes out.
0: And it seems like, Wayne, you know, what you're saying there, the, the co-creation model allows each party, the the business and the software company, to do what they do best or to play the role that they know best. One doesn't have to replicate. The, the software company can never have all the deep vertical market expertise that the customer has and the customer can never understand and uh, all the things that a software company has to do. But also, Wayne, what you mentioned a couple minutes ago, the business cycles can be very different, right? And you don't want to have, uh, you know, try to be a creator and seller of software when you are a slave to some other set of issues and priorities. Uh, but when I think some of these examples are remarkable, right? I was uh, Siemens, right? Big industrial company, 150 years old you know, uh, world renowned for a lot of the stuff it does, if you look at a certain portion of the Siemens website, where they talk about their software products, I would define anybody to say is that Oracle, is it SAP, is it Microsoft, somebody else, but it's Siemens. So we're seeing the rise of a lot of uh, companies that are not just great consumers of other companies technology, but they're creating some of their own. And so whether it's that in their domain area or a co-creation piece like American Airlines and Microsoft did some to help get planes out on time. Where is they? I just think it's it's an extraordinary time right now, but business leaders have to be careful, right, that they structure these things the right way and they don't get as you know you talked about before, don't get overly caught up in a dream that says, oh yes, software margins are high. I'll become a software company, have high margins, and everything will be peachy. No, you want to. Balance that the right way, and I think that's really the the art and plus science of this co creation phenomenon. Is does that seem fair, Wayne?
1: Yeah, the the I definitely you want to understand the business model and what they're asking you to do. Number one, again another story. I was in the bank a bank. We built our own software product for a kind of loan. It was great software. It was modern architecture. It was delivered brilliantly. I had nothing to do with writing it. I came to the company when they already had the product. I looked at it and went, wow. And we sold it to a competitor. And the competitor was, we understand you're our competitor. You're not in our geography. But then we had a problem getting it integrated into their process. And I'll never forget having to send my head developer for lending products to my competitor's bank for six months while he worked out the bugs in their process to make our software. Now, we were making money on the software and it was good. So understand, is the vendor that you're working with, the Microsoft, Google, Oracle, IBM, et cetera, the support arm, is it a third party that maybe is one of the systems integrators, you know, the big consulting firms, going to support those clients? Or is that work back on you? So make sure you understand the contract and you've staffed up for it. How do you handle help desk calls that are, my software, the button, you push the buttons and they click, but it doesn't do what I think it should do based on the doc. Who writes the documentation? You know, you've got to be building this, this uh, Brooks Laws, the 3X and 3X. If you've got some of that accountability, make sure as the CIO, you've either set up a business unit within IT to deliver that and, and have a p and or that the business, your company has a P&L somewhere else in the software business. It's a great business to be in. Bob, well, let me tell you another story, the opposite, how a vendor can help. I worked for a company. We had this great software product, the help desk product I mentioned. We had three salespeople selling it. And so we were approached by a major bank. We'd love to sell your product. We would, we would love to just pilot it, though. We want to test it first. Okay, um, what do you want to do? Well, we're going to tell each of our salespeople to sell a couple of licenses, You know, 10, 20 seats each. Okay, that's terrific. Uh, how many salespeople do you have? 3,200, we had three. Um, In a year, our volume of work in this product went up by a hundred times. Not a hundred percent, a hundred times because they were just testing it. So if you get something listed in the Microsoft store or the Oracle store or the Google store, the IBM store, and it is a solution for a problem others have and your software is good, your scalability of that product is almost infinite. Yeah. the number of people yeah. they reach, the number of solutions they touch is is just amazing if you're you know if you're American Airlines you're a giant bank, you already know that. but if you're the average company, the five billion and under company, this can be eye-opening how much money you make. and of course the software business has got very high uh, margins, you know very low uh, cost per copy. Yeah. Once I build the software, adding one more person costs me almost nothing marginal. Uh, but again, one more caution to the CEO. Yeah. Right now, if you're used to the software model, most CEOs grew up in the old days. You put in a new version of software every year or two years or three years, because that's when the big ERP, EHR vendors set out a release. The cadence of the cloud is different. You know that. I know that. We're learning it. They put out software every month, 12 times a year, or every week, 52 times a year, or some six times a year, 10 times a year. If your product is working in their environment, now you gotta support that with all the releases they put out. If they change something and it breaks your software, you gotta fix it. If they add a feature that overlaps something you've built, you gotta fix it. If they have something and they come to you and say, I need this, you may have to iterate faster than you've ever done before. So you're getting on a treadmill. It's a good treadmill because it gives you capabilities faster um, and more efficiently, but recognize it's a change to your business model. And if your organization isn't, what do we call it? The acceleration economy. Yes. If you're not in the acceleration economy, you're gonna be in it if you're building software for others in the acceleration economy.
0: Well, Wayne, I tell you what, you know, when, when uh, we first opened up the show and I saw this terrific uh, shirt and tie you're wearing, I thought, well, Wayne's awfully good, but he's going to have to live up now to this package he's put forward with this snazzy outfit. But, pal, I think you somehow managed to do it. So well done. Uh, great advice here, you know, scaling from hybrid cloud to these notions of co-creation. But that's the world today we're in, right? Models are changing. New ways of doing things are essential, and business leaders have to be able to move and adapt and understand and uh, be able to deal with all these new phenomenon in the marketplace. So Wayne, I think really helpful to uh, give some, a lot of people some good advice here on how to cope with some of these uh, things that might've taken a decade to understand and digest before. And now we've got, you know, a couple months to figure it all out. That's right. I'm glad you
1: realize I'm not just a pretty tie, Bob.
0: No, no, no. Heck no Wayne. I'd never, Pigeonhole you that way, but Wayne, thanks. This has been terrific. Always good to have you. Always good to be here,
1: and I look forward to the next time I see you in person, Bob.
0: Same here, Wayne. Same here. Same here. And folks, thanks to all of you for being with us here on Cloud Wars Live. We're in the middle of summer. I hope that is going great for everybody, and we will be back next month with Wayne Saden again. We'll see if he's able to uphold his uh, sartorial splendor uh, to this uh, to this new standard. Thanks everyone for being with us. Hope it's a fantastic day for you.